Well, good morning, Saints. It is uh, good to be with you, albeit in a virtual sense again. I hope this uh, video cast finds you all in good health and in good spirits as we continue to navigate this very challenging time, yet we are so grateful to God that he has provided ways for us to be together nonetheless and uh, enjoy a time of worship and reflection uh, upon his word. Uh, I'll tell you, I'm very excited about uh, the lesson today as we are embarking on this study on the attributes of God that we've entitled, Behold Our God. I want to just do another quick thank you to Nick uh, for arranging all of the timing of this and how it all works out together. Um, I'm, I'm so grateful for those that are up in the electronic uh, realm and able to do that. And I want to do another thank you to uh, our elders as well who have met and, and uh, who are in communication with me and the sacrifices that they make at this time as well to, to make sure all of the all of the different things get lined up uh, how they need to um, for this morning's service. But good to be uh, with you in this way. And uh, we are beginning this uh, series, this morning's lesson entitled Our Eternal God, Our Eternal God. And so obviously we're going to speak about the attribute of God's eternality and all the different aspects of that that we'll be able to uh, enjoy with one another. And I want to just tell you that uh, this will be somewhat like a rocket blasting off into outer space where we will no doubt be burning a lot of fuel, a lot of brain power, if you will, uh, at initial phases of takeoff because we have to lay the foundation for this. And uh, so I'm glad that you're you're willing and uh, hopefully excited to to be part of this series on the attributes of God. If you could make your way to Psalm 90, we're going to be in that psalm a little bit today as we consider the eternal nature of our God. Let's just begin in a, in a moment of prayer as we devote this time to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the opportunity to come and, and learn even in this setting. I ask that your word would be powerful and strong and move through the challenges and difficulties that we all face. Lord, encourage every heart with the truth that is in your scripture this morning even, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I want to introduce you to a gentleman uh, by the name of A.W. Pink, who wrote a fascinating little book on the attributes of God. There's a quote in there under the chapter, speaking of God. I want, I want you to hear what he has to say about a time in the beginning. Pink says, there was a time, if time it could be called, when God in the unity of his nature, though existing equally in three divine persons, dwelt alone. In the beginning, God. There was no heaven where his glory is now particularly manifested. There was no earth to engage his attention. There were no angels to hymn his praises, no universe to be upheld by the word of his power. There was nothing. There was no one but God. And that not for a day or a year or an age, but from everlasting. During a past eternity, God was alone, self-contained, self-sufficient, self-satisfied, and in need of nothing. Had a universe, had angels, had human beings been necessary to him in any way, they also would have been created or called into existence from all eternity. The creating of them when he did added nothing to God essentially, 
for he changes not, and his essential glory can neither be augmented nor diminished. That author captures a very solitary moment in eternity where God dwelt all alone, although we know he wasn't alone because of the Trinitarian nature of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but was perfectly contained within himself. This morning, we're going to, as temporal beings, try to, to grasp as, as, as much as we are able the eternal nature of God. And there's a sense in which it's trying to kind of grasp the Atlantic Ocean, if it were, They're trying to, to measure its depths. And we just know going into this, it's not going to happen. But nonetheless, today we will embark on what is probably even a more impossible, impossible task, and that is grasping the eternal depths of the eternal God himself. And what's going to help us with that a little bit is Psalm 90, if you're there. I want to begin reading in verse 1. Psalm 90 is probably the first psalm of the Psalter. It, it is a, a song of Moses. And he writes, Lord, uh, and this is Yahweh, the eternal one, capital letters. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you did give birth to the earth and to the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And you do turn man back into dust and say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. These verses allow us to tap into the eternal aspects of God, albeit in a very limited fashion. Verse 1 here speaks how God has been our dwelling place, our refuge, really our protection in all generations, all mankind, uh, collectively all generations from Adam the first man until the, the first newborn uh, infant of this very day. All have had access to God's eternal sheltering influence of the entire uh, time and era. In verse 2, we see that before the mountains were born, or God did give birth to the earth and to the world, speaking here of the birth of the mountains when, when, when God existed before creation, we see at the end of that verse, even from everlasting to everlasting you are God. And the mountains which paint for us a picture of permanence as it were, of stability, and really, we cannot think of a time ever in our lives when the mountains were not there, but the scripture says before the mountains were even placed into their position of permanence, you are God from everlasting to everlasting. Notice in verse 3, you do return man back to the dust and say, return, O children of men. Indicating that God is the God who exercises power over the dates and the deadlines and the destinies of every human being. And when you, when you look back in verse 2, it says, From everlasting to everlasting you are God. What that means in the Hebrew is from vanishing point to vanishing point. Meaning, as far as the eye can see, perhaps to the east or to the west, you are God. There are no bounds to you. In verse 4, we see that. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, him being timeless. And so this is, this is our verse that causes us to blast off of the, mountain, or the, uh, the launching pad, rather, as we consider the attribute of God's eternality today. 
your notes should uh, have a little uh, working definition for you there. Uh, when we talk about the eternality of God, we are referring to the aspect of God's nature where he reveals himself as having no beginning, no end, and note this, existing completely in and of himself and being infinitely self-sustaining. you got to kind of just let that definition rest on you a little bit here. It's God, how he has revealed himself, having no beginning or end, and existing completely within and of himself, and being infinitely self-sustaining. That's what's going to be kind of controlling the, the lesson today. And I want to begin with the first point in our notes. If you'll write that in, that God, first of all, is eternal. Would you write that in? God is eternal. God is timeless, as it were. And as we pick this apart a little bit more, what this means is that God has no beginning. Would you put that in that blank right underneath that first point? God has no beginning. This is very difficult for us to fathom. He has no origin. He has no starting place. He has no past, as it were, because he didn't begin. He didn't originate. Uh, scripture for this could be Genesis 1.1. You see the very first portion of our, our Bible, the very first book of the Bible, in the beginning God. And some translations actually reverse that a little bit, and they say, God in the beginning. And this is the idea that God existed first, even before there was a beginning. And we see this echoed in John 1, 1, where it is said of the Lord Jesus that in the beginning was the Word. You remember this. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And so we see that these attributes are true of the Father. They are true of the Son. I could tell you, I could show you verses of the eternal Spirit as well. We believe in a Trinitarian God. Psalm 93.2 says, Your throne, O God, is established from old. Namely, you are from everlasting. You're from everlasting, God. There is no beginning for you. But we also note under that point of being eternal there, it also means God has no end. He has no beginning and he has no end. He is unending. He is perpetual. He is continuous, undying. He is eternal. He never began to exist, and he will never cease to exist. Psalm 9, verse 7 says, But you, O God, are the same, and your years will not come to an end. He has no end. Psalm 29, 10 says, The Lord sits as king forever. And Psalm 48, verse 14 says, Our God is forever and ever. And there's just this idea in the psalmist. That, that there is just this ongoing perpetual nature to our God. And Job 36, 26 says the number of his years is unfathomable. You can't fathom them. You can't count them. Why? Because there is no end to them. They cannot be counted. God has no beginning. He has no end. And thirdly, would you, wrote, would you write in your notes that God exists in an eternal now? This is a very fascinating thought to consider of God, that God exists in an eternal now. God is our dwelling place, the psalmist says in Psalm 90. Right now, he's our dwelling place. And he was a dwelling place for all generations. I think of the generations of, of Adam and the generations of the patriarchs and the generations of the Israelites who were all 
at one time or another taken to a foreign land or did not have a, a homestead or a home place to call their own, but God served as their home. God served as their dwelling place. God can do this because he exists in an eternal now. You'll remember when Moses, he had commissioned Moses in Exodus chapter 3, and he had commissioned Moses to go speak to the the, the Pharaoh of Egypt. And Moses was nervous about that. And Moses said, well, who am I going to say sent me? And God answers Moses and says, I'll tell you who you're going to say sent you. You tell them, you tell Pharaoh that I am sent you. I am thus taking on the eternal name of God. And it's interesting that once again, our Lord in John eight fifty eight, when he was confronted by the Pharisees of that day, challenging his own identity. He said, before Abraham was born, I am. And Jesus, therefore, taking this eternal covenant name of Yahweh, something that no one would do, no man would do. And as a result, uh, they, they sought to take his life. And in Hebrews 13.8, we read that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we can give you scripture upon scripture to show that God exists in this eternal now, no beginning, no end, uh, and and, and really no middle, if you will, as well. God's eternity, one writer says, comprehends in itself all years, all ages, all periods of ages. It never begins. It endures after every duration of time. It never ceases. And it does as much to outrun time as it went before the beginning of it. That is William Charnock in his book, Existence and Attributes of God. And so you ask yourself, the question, how does God relate to time? Well, if you have your notes there, I, I put together a little picture there that kind of helps us with that. And, and I'll just show you mine real quick. If you don't have yours, I'm referring to this picture here where God, kind of like a sun there, looks down upon time. And he looks down from, from eternity past and, and all the way through creation. And then he, he sees the life of Christ and then 2000 later 2000 years later in in the year 2020 he sees us and then he sees the final judgment in the future but what you need to understand kind of like a sun that shines over all parts of the day god in his eternal perspective shines through all aspects of time and of life and of of existence and he is above it all and he's given us time as a gift and we ought not waste time we ought to maximize it but but God shines, as it were, looking down on all components of time as we know it. We are subject to time, but God is not subject to time. As we leave this point of God's eternality, this is the perfection which belongs only to God. This is an incommunicable attribute. We have eternal life in a sense of everlasting life as we come to know this eternal God. We, we will never see death in that regard, but we didn't exist forever like God existed forever. Uh, heaven and hell will last forever, but heaven and hell are not eternal in the sense of existing forever. They had to be created. And human souls are not necessarily to be considered eternal in the sense of self-existing forever, but they are everlasting. And our eternal God is the only one that can be ascribed that attribute of having no beginning, having no middle, and having no end. I want to move on to our second point this morning. Not only have we seen that God is eternal, but we're also going to look briefly at the fact that God is self-existence. 
uh, self-existent. This fact will literally blow your mind when you think about it. If you think about it too long, it, it kind of short circuits your, your mental capacities. It does mine at least. Because as humans, we, the only thing we know is that we derive our existence from another, right? I mean, all of us have been born. All of us have been made. We've had, we have a birth date. We, we have to be nourished. We have to be sustained by parents through those tender years. We grow up from the womb and we are always reliant on something or something else. We have an origin. Uh, we, we have a cause that has acted upon us. And that's how we know everything. But here's the point underneath God's self-existence. God derives his existence from himself. Would you put that in your, your notes today if you have that? God derives his existence from himself. This is a beautiful Latin word where, we, where the uh, theologians refer to it as the word aseity. It's in your notes there, aseity. And what aseity means in the Latin is that which comes out of itself. That which is self-existence. Uh, to have one's being or existence to come from within itself. It is underived. This is a fascinating, fascinating concept when applied to God. And it is the only, God is the only being which it can be applied to. The concept of origin, as we know, can only be applied to that which has been created or that which has been born. It's, it's of the creature. But aseity is ascribable only to God. To God alone is the one who has life originating out of himself. The child may ask, who made the earth, mommy? Who, who made the seas, daddy? Who made the birds? And, and a, a child may even ask, who made me? But when the child asks the question, who made God? That, my friend, is a point in which the child steps off into the deep end of the pool, as we've been referring to here. That child's going to need some help. Because that child is now probing the depth of self-existence. Nobody made God. Nobody created God. And God comes from within himself. This is the aseity of God. You say, Eli, is there scripture to support this? There is. John 5.26, if you want to write that down. John 5.26 says, the Father has life in himself. Think about that for a moment. The Father has life. The Father is life. And he has it in himself. And then that verse goes on to say, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Interesting that not only the Father has life in himself, but the Son has life in himself as well. This is why the scripture refers to God as the living God, right? Romans 9.26 speaks about this. Hebrews talks about it being a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Because this God receives nothing outside of himself. It is a staggering thought that God, the creator of the universe, is the uncreated cause of all things. It causes your mind just to pause mentally and even stumble at some points if you probe this for too long. I think of Acts chapter 17 when we read of this sermon that Paul preached on Mars Hill 
And Paul is in the Areopagus speaking to these who are worshiping an unknown God. And he says in verse 24, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, neither is he served by humans, human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all life and breath to all things. Beloved, if you have life today, if you have breath today, it does not come from yourself. It comes from the God, the eternal self-existent God who has life in himself and who is gracious enough to share that life with us. He is, he is in need of nothing. And then later it says this is, this is a result of appointing our times and our boundaries so that we should seek God if perhaps we might grope for him even in the dark, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. We have our being. And he goes on, some of your own poets say these things. And so this is just to underscore the fact that God is self-existent, but he shares that life with us. But he's independent of all things. And it's important to, to never speak of God in a sense of needing anything, right? We, we, have to, we have to be very careful sometimes because of in, our, in our human uh, frailty and our limitations, we will sometimes, we, we know nothing other than needing, needing someone else or something else. But we have to be very careful never to ascribe that to God. God does not need anything. He doesn't need us or any part of the creation. We have needs. We need air and we need food and water and light. And, and we, we need shelter. And, and, and I believe you could even say we need relationships. We need friendships. But you have to understand God needs none of that. He is perfectly contained within himself and has no needs. It is never true of God to say that he needs something. And in fact, in Psalm 50, we, we see God even commenting on this. And this is just everywhere in the scriptures. But I just pick... I just pick one uh, little section, Psalm 50 and verse 12. God says, uh, I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field. It's mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats to offer God a sacrifice in thanksgiving and pay vows to the Most High? What he's saying here is this is something that man is needing to do. But if I were, I don't, I don't need these sacrifices to feed me or to supply me with something. I, I own it all. And, and to speak of God in this way really denies his self-existence. He's not dependent upon this world. He's not dependent upon kings. He's not dependent upon our sacrifices. He's, he doesn't need the nations. He doesn't need rich businessmen to, to help his church or his causes in the world to advance. He needs none of this he is completely existing within and of himself, no sustenance, no support, no help. He doesn't need any hope. He doesn't need any encouragement. He doesn't need any entertainment. He needs no disciples. He needs no defenders. He needs no politics. Note this, he needs no praise. He doesn't need that. Now, he receives those things. He, he receives pr the praise of his people, but he is not dependent upon them. I say this because sometimes you'll hear people say, well, God, 
God created the world because he was lonely or that he needed man to interact with because he's awfully bored up there in outer space. We're going to talk about outer space in just a moment here. Well, that denies, ladies and gentlemen, the self-existent nature of God. God existed forever without, he was doing fine without us. He allows us in on this amazing divine plan and then really causes our redemption to be the centerpiece of it all, which we will see as we move through his attributes. But for now, we're just going to take on what we can grab. God is eternal. God is self-existent. And at this point, if your mind isn't blown already, we just have to raise our hands with the, the Apostle Paul in Romans eleven thirty six and just say, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. He desires our praise. And so we, we regard him correctly and we understand that to believe in him or to not believe in him adds nothing or takes away nothing from his, perfect, his perfected nature. To, to doubt him takes away nothing and to add to, to, to ascribe faith to him adds nothing to him as, as Tozer there says in that quote. Because he is eternally self-existent, okay? So we've seen that God is eternal. We've seen that he is self-existent. I want to just give you a third one, and we'll conclude the message with this this morning. God is infinite and immense. God is infinite and immense. Now, you may say, Eli, you're just playing with words here. You're saying he's eternal and self-existent and infinite and immense. And... I'm, I'm, I'm stressing to you the difficulty that all theologians have as they consider what does it mean for God to be from everlasting to everlasting, Psalm 90, verse 2. And what does it mean for him to exist before the mountains being born? And what does it mean for a thousand years in your sight like yesterday? These are all human terms that, that God is giving us through his word to help describe himself. But, but God is infinite. God is immense. What does this mean? It means, first of all, he's measureless. Would you put that in your notes, that he's, he's measureless. He's boundless, as it were. He is without limitation. God is without restriction. Nobody can restrict God or limit God. He is not limited by time. He is not limited by space. You could refer to God as being transcendent. He is above space. He is above time. He is above his entire creation. And so, so do not think of God in terms of measurement or size or boundaries or limits. He is limitless. You could take the longest ruler, the person who has ruled for, for decades and decades, and that is nothing compared to the rulership of God over his earth. Or you can take a light year and the concept of a light year or the speed of light. The speed of light, which travels at 186,000 miles per second, is too slow to catch up to God who made light and to measure him in terms of time or size or speed. That is far too slow for God. He is measureless. He is boundless. Secondly, will you note under this last point that this is an incommunicable attribute of God, is it not? And it, it ought to be that way. This can only be said of God that he is limitless, that he is infinite, that he is measureless and boundless. We speak, of, we speak of these terms and we know what they mean in English. For instance, we will, we will speak of an artist who took infinite pains with his work. Or we will, we will speak of a teacher, perhaps, that had infinite patience with her classroom. Um, but, but these are all just uh, 
ways in which we measure something very large, but that it does have a limit. Uh, we speak of the, the the infinite ocean as you're looking out onto the to the shores where the the ocean just appears to look like it goes forever. But these are all just ways to to in a in a in a use of hyperbole, deliberate exaggeration to show that this is a very big thing. But they all have a limit, as we know, and true infinity and true immensity can only be ascribed to God himself. I want to show you something in Isaiah chapter 40, because God does this as well. In Isaiah 40, God is uh, measuring the nations. He's measuring the peoples. And it's in that text, one of my, uh, one of my most favorite texts. In Isaiah 40 and verse 12, we read these words. Um, like a shepherd, he will tend to his flock and his arm will gather the lambs and carry him in his bosom. Um, and then it says, uh, he, he marked off the heavens by the span and he calculated the dust of the earth by measure. And note this, verse 12, Isaiah 40, verse 12. And he weighed the mountains on a balance. He weighed the mountains on a, on a scale and the hills in a pair of scales. So here, think of these majestic, huge mountains. If you've ever visited the Rocky Mountains or Glacier National, all these beautiful places where there's high, high mountains. It's as if God takes these mountains and just puts them on a scale and he weighs them. And he says their, their net weight when at the end of the day is they are dust. The mountains are, are weighed in as dust on a scale. Something that you can just blow off of a scale. And later in verse 22, we don't have time really to look there, but, it, but he says he measures the nations as well. And he says the nations are like a drop in a bucket. And he says the people, I love this, are like grasshoppers. Just little insects, little tiny beings that they think they're so big. They think they're so con uh, uh, significant. But when compared to the infinite, boundless immensity of God, they are like a drop in the bucket. An entire nation is a drop. And as I thought about this this morning, as I thought about how could I, how could I best illustrate this immensity and infinite size of God, immeasurable size of God. I thought of the illustration of outer space. I'll never forget when I was just a young boy. I was probably 12 or 13 years old, and I was given a, a telescope for a Christmas present one year. And I would, I, I figured out how to find Saturn in the night sky. And when you would look at Saturn, I remember as a young boy, I would look up and I could just see Saturn that appeared as if it were just another star in the universe as I was looking up from my little perspective on Earth. And then I, I dialed in the telescope on Saturn. And when I looked into the eyepiece and I saw for the first time Saturn close up and I saw its immensity and I saw its axis and its tilt and I saw the rings of Saturn on its axis that left an, an, an immeasurable um, impact upon my mind as a young child as to how big this 
little tiny dot in the sky really was even under a telescope. And then when compared to when you learn how big it really is, it's it's mind blowing. But I began to be fascinated with outer space. And, you know, I, I was stunned that day and I continue to be stunned as, I, as you look at modern studies of outer space. And I think outer space, when we think of this issue of eternality, and we think of infinity and we think of an immensity and we ascribe these attributes to our living self-existent God. I think in a sense it's similar. The, the best human illustration is the size of outer space, really. And you know where I'm going with this. And, and did you know that right now scientists are debating whether outer space is fixed or expanding? They, they debate whether there is a, a, a limit to, to space or if it's actually growing. And I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I think theologically, God is the only uh, uh, element that has no fixed size or space. So there's a sense in which I think outer space is limited. But wouldn't it be like God? Think of this. Wouldn't it be like God to create space in such a way so as to at a minimum appear to be ever expanding and expanding and going on almost as if into an eternity. Wouldn't it be like our God to create something for us to explore and look into in a reminder to be reminded frequently of his own infinity, of his own immensity, of his own eternality. And that is really the best illustration that I can think of here. And it reminds me of 1 Kings 8, 27, when Solomon, when he is um, uh, implementing the new temple, he says, But will God indeed dwell upon the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven, could be referring to space, cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. He's saying heaven itself can't contain you, God. How much, how much less is this temple that I have built? And, and I always am, I always am, uh, I always chuckle to myself when people say, well, don't put God in a box, right? You've heard this. Maybe you've said this. Don't put God in a box. That's putting God in a box. And I think about this, especially after today's lesson. And I think, put, don't put God in a box. Really? You, as if we would actually have the ability as humans to put God in a box. And Solomon here says the highest heaven cannot contain God, let alone this little temple I'm building, let alone your little box. You can't put God in a box is the, the point. It's impossible. So to suggest that somebody is or even trying to, it's really, again, just hyperbole. But, but we understand that and we speak in these terms. But even if outer space were a million times larger than it is, that box could not even contain him. Because Isaiah 66 verse 1 says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you could build for me? Heaven is, heaven is where I sit. And this huge, vast planet we call earth, yeah, that's just where I kind of put my foot up, my feet up, and I... I just kind of rest my feet on, on the, the globe of the, of the earth. And my throne is the entire heavenly atmosphere, if you will. That's how Isaiah looks at it. So, so as we conclude this first attribute of God, our eternal God, what a blessing it is to have a God that is eternal. Is it not? Especially in this day, right? I, I want you to rest in this day. Rest in God's eternal nature. 
If you know him, you know him to be an eternal God, having no beginning and no end. You know him to be the God of life. You know him to be infinite and immense. Now rest in that infinite, eternal, and immense God. Trust his, his nature that he lasts forever. We are temporary, but he has given a piece of himself to us through the ability to have found life in his son. He has life in himself, and he has given life to the son to have life in himself. And the son says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And so I hope that you trust in God's eternity today. I also hope that you understand that it is God's eternity, and get this today before we leave, it is God's eternal nature that answers the brevity of life. It answers the concerns that we have daily about the brevity of our lives. And all those concerns are, are running high at this time uh, in, our, in our world, in our nation. Verse 5 of Psalm 90 says, You have swept them all away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Towards evening it fades and withers away. And our lives, later it talks about if, if uh, due to strength are 80 years old. And then later it speaks about God establishing and confirming the works of our hands. Folks, we have to come to grips with the brevity of our own lives. And that's okay because we are connected to an eternal God. This is why I always say wherever I can, we need eternal life. We have to tap into this eternality of God. And he has allowed us to do that through his son, given on the cross as a sacrifice for sin, that those who believe in him, who trust in him, and who repent of their sin, and who decide that it is now time to do things God's way, the, the eternal way, not the, the temporal way that, that we find in our temporal attempts to satisfy ourselves. We tap into the living God, the eternal God. And I hope that you can just rest in that today. As, <clears throat> as an extension of his eternity, we also have eternal life. I hope this message has been an encouragement to, to you today. Next week, to kind of whet your appetite, we're going to be studying the, the personality of God. We're going to be talking about relationships. And relationships are tested at this time, no doubt, but we are still figuring out amazing ways that God has given us to continue to relate to one another. And so uh, we're going to talk about the... Um, the, the personality of God next week. So I hope that you'll join me uh, at that time. Let me just close in prayer. And uh, thank you all for tuning in. And thank you for being part of these uh, wonderful lessons as we probe the wonderful depths of God's eternality. Our Father, we do thank you. We pause and we just give you praise and thanksgiving today. Thank you that you are indeed an eternal God. You are the only God. And thank you that you have no beginning and no end and that you exist and will exist forever. And God, we just pause to thank you this day that you have given us uh, a peek into that etern eternality. We thank you that you have also given us uh, part of your life, him, uh, yourself, in your son. Thank you for sending him. Thank you for, for him becoming a man and, and becoming familiar with all of our difficulties and challenges, Lord. I pray for those who who do struggle during this time. I pray that they would look to you as their eternal comfort 
and confidence during this trying time. We will bless your name, Lord. We long to be back together again. And until then, Lord, we will give you praise and thanksgiving for all the wonderful things you are doing. May your purposes be accomplished this day. And we pray this in the name of your son. Amen. Amen, guys. We hope to see you again next week. Give us a call or reach out if if you have any needs and we want to be available to you. Okay. We love you all and uh, long to be together again shortly. Have a great day. Wow. (laughs) Uh, Just the whole, uh, I don't know. I just can't get over that, that, uh, his illustration of space and how we can study space and sort of get a grasp of what the eternity, the, the mass, just the immenseness of who God is. I don't know. That's pretty cool. So, um, feel free to, uh, we're going to have this up uh, later today. Feel free to watch it through. Um, feel free to be part of it. Uh, Bailey's waking up from her nap. <laughs> um, but I just want to leave you all with a, a family challenge. One, a family. We are the body of Christ. We are a big family, but also an activity that if you have kids and you're stuck in the house, something that you guys could do. Well, one, I always just challenge you all. It's a beautiful day today. You might as well go out on the walk and get, get some fresh air. Um, but other than that, my family challenge today is to spend time with God and learn who he is. A good way to start is Psalm 97, and I would say when you read it, grab a piece of paper and just write out everything it says of who God is, and then just read through that list that you've read out, or wrote out, and just read through it and spend time praising God for who he is. Psalm 97 is a really good psalm to start. You can pick any of the psalms. Oh, hey, Bailey. (laughs) You can pick any of the psalms. And, and and really read through it and then write out a list of who God is. It's a good way to study it on your own, but uh, you can always re-watch the sermon later today. For the families with have kids, one activity I, I think I, it would be fun for you guys to do, encourage you guys to do, is to host your own drive-in movie. What I mean by that is like, you know, have your kids uh, build a car, you know, take a cardboard box, they can design it, color it, and that kind of stuff. Or you can just take pillows and make like a car out, out of like your, your pillows or, or cushions and maybe spend some time making your favorite childhood snack with them, helping teaching them how to make your favorite childhood snack. And then just pick a fun movie um, that you can watch together in your car, <laughs> in a sense, in your living room. Um, that's my family activity for you for this week and my challenge for all you guys to spend time with God resting in his word and knowing who he is by writing out everything a psalm says who he is and taking time to praise God. Even though he doesn't need it, it's awesome to praise God and to get that rest we have. So, anyways, thank you guys for joining in, and thank you guys for uh, commenting and being there. Here, I'll show you a little bit of Bailey. Hi, Bailey. Here we go. Here's your Bailey video of the week. Hope you guys enjoy. And uh, we'll see you all next Sunday. All right. (laughs) Bye.